Hello, everyone. This is the Sink or Swim podcast. I'm Vikram Patel, MS4, who is applying into internal medicine residency as we speak. And I'm Nick Petit. I'm also an MS4 here at NSUMD, and I'm currently uh, applying for anesthesiology. We will be talking about how to prepare for a residency application starting from your first year of medical school. As a disclaimer, we are students. We are not program directors or anyone affiliated with programs that are enlisting residents or vetting them. Um, this is our perspective and anecdotal experience that we will support with some M NRMP data. With that having been said, we're going to discuss the residency application process and how to best prepare from the first year of medical school. Uh, the particulars of the ERAS application process, as such as the letter of recommendation and the different components included within. With that being said, let us start with the first section. So we're going to first talk about... Yeah, so I just wanted to say briefly, um, we're just... We like I literally looked at my ERAS application and went down every section. Um, and that's where we got the format for this. And Vikram did the same thing as me, looked at ERAS. Um, and so the way we kind of organized this is we literally just looked at what is exactly in ERAS because that's what we recently filled out. So none of this is like, oh, you should think about that. It's all based on specifically the application that we recently did. Um, so the first section that we wanted to talk about was the CV section. Um, so there's some really basic stuff. Uh, there's like personal information, like, you know, your medical school, your undergraduate education. If you have a PhD or like a master's degree or something like that, that'll all go on there. Um, one thing in particular that's interesting about this section is it has a piece for hometowns and also for... Um, your permanent address compared to your current um, your current address so this is kind of one way besides like the signaling which we'll get into as well to kind of build a connection with an area so let's say I don't know your hometown or your permanent address is in Philadelphia Pennsylvania but you're currently in um, Florida in medical school if you put your your permanent address down as Pennsylvania it kind of helps programs to realize you have like a connection to that area um, Otherwise, there's things like languages, so that could be beneficial. Like if you speak another language, um, I, do you want to talk maybe yes. about that? So if you speak more than one languages, uh, you can put down the different proficiencies of the different languages. Um, but do keep in mind that if you put something as native or very advanced, then be prepared to interview in that language. Because very recently, I've had an interview in which I interviewed in my native tongue um, that is not English. So if you put something like that, at least be prepared to follow up on it. So I would be very truthful with <clears throat> your abilities during this entire application process. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, what you said with your story <coughs> of that interview was he literally just like introduced himself and said hi in, um, and how do, you, how do you say Gujarati? Gujarati. Gujarati, so, yeah. Yes. That's like super interesting. So def oh, And that's a, definitely another thing that I think is really important. Don't lie on anything in your application ever. Like, just be honest. Um, I speak a little bit of Spanish just from, um, you know, college and high school. So I put basic. I'm not fluent. Um, and then we also have some Spanish-speaking patients where we um, do our rotations. So I could put basic. Um, you know, just be honest with all, all sections of your um, 
application, but I think this is an example that, um, you yeah. know, the language can actually be really interesting. Yeah. Um, also, with some of the things that they have you list out, such as like hometown, that can be important because they may look at that as an indicator of where you're likely to stay. Uh, so if you're from Florida, you put hometown is in Apopka, Florida, for example. You know, they may look at that and say like, oh, okay, he's more likely to stay in Florida as a lot of people are likely to stay within their state for residency as well as post-education uh, just jobs. So that's just something to keep in mind. But again, that's that section is pretty much straightforward. You just fill out your demographic information, not much to it. Um, next. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, the next is like, a, it's called membership and professional societies. Uh, one of the big things that people always talk about in this section is the AOA and the gold humanism. Um, so AOA is Alpha Omega Alpha, right? We don't have a chapter at our school, we, so we can't exactly speak upon everything. Um, but essentially, from what I've gathered, you're part of the AOA if you're like top of your class and like there's different criteria at different schools. But it's, it's basically an indicator of you being like a, a top tier student at your school, from my understanding. And gold humanism, I think, is the same thing. It just tends to be more towards like um, volunteering, volunteering and, and that stuff. So the options for that one, like for our school, um, we we have specifically in our application like does not have AOA or gold humanism. So it doesn't hurt us or help us really. But if you have a chapter at your school, it would say you're not a part of it or you are a part of it. Um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so AOA and gold humanism are looked differently depending on the specialty you go to. Um, even if you're not a part of it, I don't think it's a make or break situation, but it does help if you are a part, like if your school has it and you are part of it that that kind of indicates that either you're really strong in your uh experiences your volunteering service or you're really academically well inclined um and so i'm just yeah i'm just looking at the data so we brought up it's the uh nrmp releases a program director survey and we'll be referencing this a few times um and we're just going to look at if you look it up yourself just look you know program director survey you can find it all it's open access um but we're just gonna look at all specialties. It might be different based on the specialties, but you know, we don't know, we're not gonna go through every single one. So if you're applying anesthesiology, please you know, look at the data for your own specialty. But as far as overall, the AOA membership, uh, this is for considered and deciding whom to interview percent. Uh, AOA was at 50.6 and Gold Humanism was at 50.5. So basically half of the program directors said that they use this in consideration for an interview and then as far as ranking the importance so one would be not at all important five would be very important the aoa was at 3.5 and the gold humanism was at 3.6 so i think that based on this data the way i interpret it is yeah it's probably a good thing but it's not going to make or break you i definitely agree with that um a lot of the other things we'll talk about are definitely going to be much more important. This is great to have. And again, as Nick said, a lot of the things we're going to spe be speaking about are specialty specific. Some specialties like certain things more than others. Um, so definitely look at whatever speciality you're looking at or looking into specifically. But 
you know, we'll just give you the general gist of how most programs kind of go about it and most specialities kind of go about it. So aside from the AOA and gold humanism, you also have professional memberships, such as American College of Physicians um, and different societies, such as the American Association of Neurologic Surgeons, if you're interested in neurosurgery. So you can put down what member you are and for how long you've been a member uh, of these different societies. So if you are interested in a particular specialty, I would say join their association because one, they oftentimes have opportunities for medical students in those associations if you are a part of it. Um, you can oftentimes apply for grants if you are interested in research. Um, the AANS, the American Association of Neurologic Surgeons, for example, those interested in neurosurgery can find a mentor there if your, pro if your program does not have a neurosurgery, like if a residency in neurosurgery affiliated with your medical school. So these different associations have a lot of benefit depending on what it is. Plus it shows an interest from the beginning. So if you're considering something seriously, I would join their association. There may be a small fee, which you may be able to get reduced or waived if your school has a chapter for that particular, um, a organization such as having a neurosurgery interest group, they may be able to help you with getting an AANS membership at a reduced cost. Yeah, I definitely would recommend joining them. I mean, it's really easy. Like it just costs like, I think it was like 50 bucks for me yeah. to join the American Society of Anesthesiologists. And I get like a magazine and emails and all this stuff and I could go to the meetings. Um, and yeah, it's really cheap as a student usually for these things. Um, also anything else you're interested in, it's good to join. But I would just say, um, I've heard some stories of students joining whatever society it is that they're applying to, uh, like a month before ERAS is due. And I feel like, you know, it's kind of like, you're not going to know anything about it if you do that. So I would just recommend joining it like, you know, maybe a little bit earlier than that, as soon as you're interested. Definitely agree with that. Um, so that's the memberships and uh, affiliations that you're a part of. The next part we're going to speak about is the experiences that you gather throughout your medical school years, as well as important ones that you have prior to medical school. So one of the most important things you can do is to keep a CV of updated experiences that, that you keep updating whenever something new happens so that you're not rushing at the end to find out what you've done or you may forget a few things if you really haven't recorded them down. I most certainly have forgotten at least one experience that I've done in medical school just because I don't remember at this time uh, and so I could not include it in my application, which would not have been a concern had I kept a log of everything. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember like when we were first year medical students, like we got the advice, I don't even remember, probably multiple faculty and they just said like, have an updated CV at all times. And yeah, the one thing is like you're saying, I mean, when, you, when it comes down to ERAS and let's say it's due in a month or two months, whatever, you're gonna be like, what did I do in medical school? And you're gonna just forget things. So if you already have it written down, it's just gonna be way less stressful. But I think also this is really useful because if you ever apply to like 
I don't know, a, a research position or something. And somebody, I mean, it's pretty casual for a professional person to just say, Hey, send me your CV. And if you don't have one and you're like kind of stuck scrambling to put that together, if, if you have it ready, I mean, it's way, it's way better. So that's definitely some advice. I would say start from the first year of medical school is just record the things you do. Your leadership here, or you had like a, a volunteer experience. You went to the hospital a few times or just, just whatever it is. Um, keep track of it, keep it on a CV, write a couple notes about it. Um, and I think that'll just really, really help you uh, moving forward in your medical career. So I kind of want to piggyback off of that. You know, keep a log of not only the things you've done, but also write down what you did during that time, maybe who your advisor was. Um, and also like, just write a couple sentences about like, oh, I learned this so-and-so, or I was able to help people by doing so-and-so. Uh, something that you could possibly write similar to what you did when you applied for medical school. Uh, so just write a couple sentences like that. It, it, if you don't use it, then it's fine. But if you end up using that experience in your ear ass, it will help you at that time because you're not going to remember what you did the you know second semester of m1 year when you're applying in m4 year it seems like an eternity away um so to that there it's separated into three sections so there's in your experiences it's work uh, there's work section which is typically reserved for um if you had gap years in between your medical like in undergrad as well as your medical school so if you worked in a company or you worked as a scribe ma whatever what have you so it kind of helps to explain the gap in between that time period what were you doing you know what experience do you bring to the table now something that i asked our advisor at my school was like i worked part-time at a fast food restaurant in college should i include that and she said no that's really not going to help you it's that's not really what the work section is made for. So if you did something clinically related, you definitely can put that. Or if you were doing something full time and you had like gap years in between, or you were doing something between high school and college, let's say, and then you started college, that's something you can put in because there, there's periods of times where you can't account for it. And you probably did something meaningful during that time, something you can bring to the table. But a part-time job that you might have done is um you know in college may or may not really be the best place for this to go another section is the volunteering which we'll kind of elaborate on this a little bit more but so volunteering like includes any clubs that you've been a part of any interest groups that you've been a part of um if you've done any volunteering while in those interest groups or if you've had any leadership positions while you've been in the interest groups, um, whether as president, treasurer, or if, or even if you had some sort of a leading role, even if you weren't on the committee, such as I think, Nick, uh, for the surgery interest group, I believe you led something. Is that correct? Yeah, I set up like a, like a volunteering event through the surgery interest group. So even though I didn't, have like a typical you know leadership role it was still something that i organized within the group uh like a volunteering event and so i put that on my ers application um and so i think i think what's kind of like what confused me about this section for volunteering is like oh you think about volunteering like when you applied to med school what is that it's like going to the food bank it's you know 
volunteering at the hospital like or hospice or whatever you know clinical volunteering um but really this is basically anything that was not paid and anything that's not research so it's really just like a broad term that can mean a lot of different things including that leadership um in organizations or um or actually like clinical volunteering and stuff like that and then i wanted to make a couple comments before we move forward about the work section um, cause I also received the same advice and I've heard other things about this section. A lot of people have nothing under work and I've been told that's absolutely fine. Um, especially if you've gone from college straight to medical school and you didn't have a, a gap year, it's perfectly fine to not have any work. I would say only include and the advice I was given would only be to only include work if it was really significant to you. Like it was clinical work that you can talk about. Maybe you were a nurse before or if you're somebody where going into residency is really a second career for you. Uh, we had a couple of classmates actually who are a little bit older than um, like a traditional student and they had really interesting careers before medical school. Um, I know one was like an engineer. Mm -hmm. um, we've had, what else have we had? A couple of other things. We've had a salesman. Uh, a chef, we had, a cook. A we cook. had someone who's a finance, like who managed uh, accounts for like corporate, like corporate accounts. He was a big time, like you know, Wall Wall Street type of person who managed like millions of dollars worth of accounts. Yeah, um, and so like these experiences are really valuable, and and a residency could, you know, they could see that as a big plus that they had this big career prior, and so they're ready to work, and they know what it's like to work a full time job. And so um, that's that's basically what I've been told about the uh, work section. I don't think it would be a bad, like, I don't think it's a bad thing to include, like, you're saying a fast food restaurant. I don't think it'll hurt you, but it won't necessarily, like, help you either. I think most people have had, like, little odd jobs throughout school or whatever, but I don't think that's really what this section um, is for. Yeah, that's not the spirit of the section. Yeah, and, and again, it's fine to have zero on there if that's the way you are, a traditional student. Um, yeah, go on. Also, so not for the work, but for the volunteering. Um, and this is more anecdotal than any guideline that you'll find anywhere. But if you're a part of a an interest group at your school, which is likely where all of most of your volunteering experiences will come from, uh, if you're just a part of an interest group and you did not, for example, I think both me and Nick have been part of at least 10 interest groups. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been, I'm listed in almost all of the interest groups at my school as Probably a member yeah. because I, you know, like to know if there's something interesting that's going to happen or if they're getting a really cool speaker or if they're just giving out keychains, whatever the case. Um, I'm par part of most of them, but I did not list most of them in my application. One, because it dilutes the actually good things that I have to put on there, such as leadership activities. I don't want them to see a list of 30 things, and if they look at two or three of them, it's like, oh, he was just a member of a couple of things. I, I would rather it be concentrated, and it, it make me look good. So I only put things that were actually... I had an active role in, such as, as Nick said, even if you weren't a lead, if you didn't have a leadership position, but if you led a project for the thing, or if you did a fundraiser, then sure, you can put that. But just including like, oh, member of the so-and-so group, unless, of course, being a member of that group entails a lot of volunteering. There are some uh, interest groups that are 
dedicated to volunteering and service such as medical mentorship group so me and nick are both have been part of the medical medical mentorship group and it involves mentoring undergraduate students who are interested in coming to medical school so that you can definitely put because you are a mentor for the organization for that organization and you've been or mentoring an undergraduate student for the past year or two years so that definitely put but for me putting the fact that i was a member of the Association of Anesthesiology, um, for which, by the way, Nick is president. Um, so that would not really look what good because I haven't done anything for them. I've attended like one meeting and that's been it. So that's just my two cents. Yeah, for sure. And I think that's a general theme in your application. And, and this is the same, I'm sure, for anybody listening who is, who, you know, was recently accepted to medical school or is currently applying. Um, you want to talk about like, why is this important? What did you do? What makes you special? Just because you were a part of a group doesn't really mean anything, but if you led something or you volunteered with them or something like that, that's what really matters. Or what did you learn from it? Yes. Um, and then the final one. So we have work experience, volunteering experience, and then research experience. Um, before we actually move to research experience, I wanted to talk about volunteering. Yeah. So, um, it is not, I will say volunteering is not nearly as important in your residency application as it is for your medical school application. So while it is good to have it, if you have only a few experiences that will not affect your chances tremendously, even depending on specialities, volunteering, they understand that studying will take up a lot of time for most people. And a lot of additional time will be spent towards research, especially if you're interested in a competitive speciality. I think Nick has some numbers for us as well for how they rank an interview. I'm trying to see. I don't see anything about... Um, I actually don't even see volunteering experiences on the PD survey. Yes, I don't see that yeah, either. Yes, so, I mean that's kind of that that would actually be interesting if they included it. But um yeah, I mean yeah, and the other thing is the, these volunteering um experiences again, they're not looking for you to volunteer every week at the homeless shelter or something. Which if you did that, I mean that's awesome and you should definitely include that. But these can be anything. So it's it's yeah, oh, you found some? Yeah, so I I did find um the volunteering and extracurricular experiences. So PD said 64% of 64.8% of PDs said that they considered it in deciding whom to interview. And for leadership qualities, 70.1% uh, used that as a factor in deciding whom to interview. While it was rated as a three, while volunteering was rated as a 3.9 on a five-point scale for how important it was in deciding whom to interview. So it, it was of considerable importance, but not not all the PDs really even used that to rank who to interview. Um, so again, it is important to have, but unlike before, like unlike applying to medical school, you're not expected to have hundreds of hours of volunteering. I don't think most people in medical school have anywhere near that amount. So, 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And yep, I could see all that data now. So th thank you so much for finding that. Awesome. Um, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a good, it's a good section though. Definitely do something in med school. I mean, I've heard of many stories where students are in like their fourth year of medical school and they're like, I haven't done anything but studying. And they kind of feel weird, like leaving that either blank or with like one thing. You don't need to go crazy about it, but like do something. I mean, it's not that much work to just do something, you know? I agree. And the one thing I will add is if you can build a theme, it really helps to build a theme because programs will ask you, you know, what type of a physician do you want to be or what can you provide to our program? They will, the program directors, residents, they, they'll all ask you like, what can you provide to this program? And for example, um, let's say I say that like, hey, I'm really interested in mentoring and I, I think I could really help with that in mentoring medical students as well as being a peer mentor and the following question would be okay how have you shown that in your application or at least they're thinking that and you have to respond to that by saying like oh you know I've, I've really always been if you've really been interested in mentoring you've done something about it in the past so show it in your application as well as when you answer the questions like oh i was the co-president of so-and-so in the medical mentorship group at my um school i've also participated in pals program which is a peer assisted learning for other medical students junior medical students and things like that if you say if you give examples and your application shows that like oh you've you've really been interested in mentoring students all this time that shows that you're not just talking you're, you're actually passionate about something versus having these five different experiences which is fine you know like you sh you can have a variety of experiences but it's nice to like build a theme if you can to really focus in on one aspect that you can really say like this is my strength and this is what i can bring to the table yeah for sure and kind of like piggybacking on what you said about like bring passion into it and create that story also if you do things that you actually care about and that you find interesting or that you're just passionate about, it's going to be less about like checking a box on your CV or in your ERAS application. And you're just going to, if you actually enjoy doing it, you're just going to keep doing it. And then when it comes to, you know, application season, it's going to be really easy for you to talk about it, to write about it, whatever, because you actually did care about it. So I would recommend doing things that you are passionate about, or at least have some interest in and not just something to, to fill in the gap or check a box or whatever definitely agree um and aside from the medical school volunteering you are still allowed to volunteer at any place you want to although it is tough to give commitments especially you know with a hectic medical school schedule but for example i've personally volunteered with my temple quite a bit even during medical school such as medical fairs walkathons doing some non-medical volunteering as well um I even did a mission trip to actually go build a temple in New Jersey. It's a, it was a 10-day trip that I participated in during the summer uh, that we had off between our M2 and M3 year. So you can still participate in other things that you were doing before medical school happened. So I would even suggest if you really like if you really loved volunteering at hospice before medical school, you can continue it. Maybe you might not be able to do it as much as you did beforehand, but like I think to show that you're still committed to that looks great on your application. Plus, it's just 
if you're really interested, I don't think medical school should be something that just prevents you from continuing the experience. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. Um, and and I, I know you mentioned this a little earlier. I just want to touch it again. Uh, there's some things I've gotten kind of mixed advice about this, like things you should include that you did before medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, the general consensus seems to be err on the side of don't include it. But if it was really meaningful and it really, you know, you think it really brings out your application or let's say you did it before medical school and continued it into medical school, then that would definitely be something that you want to um, include in your application. So, you know, as far as undergrad stuff, that's kind of up to you to decide, but maybe, you know, ask somebody about a specific, um, like your specific experiences and see if that would be appropriate for those. But basically, err on the side of no, I would say. Yes, I definitely agree with that. Um, Most undergrad experiences should not be on there unless you really continued it or unless it was really meaningful. Um, I mean, if you were a junior Olympian, include that. I would include that. Um, (laughs) If you did something monumental like that, I would 100% include that because it shows tenacity um, it shows a lot of things about your character. So, but unless it's like super monumental, if you're going to say volunteered at the library in college or at the hospital in college, please don't include that because I don't think it makes you look that great because they, they, they just won't care is it's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So. And they have a lot of applications to look at. You also have to remember they have so many applications to look at like, and it's going up and up. So they're really going to just, there's a chance they might just glance at it and you don't want your really good stuff to be washed out by things that like aren't that important from before. Exactly. So I wanted to talk then research experience. Um, Now this is different from your publication section. Just wanted to get that started. Um, Your publications, posters, all that stuff will be included separately. So this is like how many experiences have you had in research? So you might have like one mentor, one project, you would include that here. But that project may have done multiple multiple publications or like posters or whatever. So this is really like, I worked on this project um, with this person as my mentor and, and this is what I did and this is what I learned from it and this was my responsibilities. And you can have you know multiple there, um, but generally one mentor, one project, that's what you would include here. Yes, I agree with that. So essentially, how many different projects have you worked on is what this gets at. Um, typically, for example, I, I will give you myself as, exa- as an example. You can, in this experience, you can list your undergrad research experience. Yes, yes. This is one of the research stays with you forever if you did it during elementary school put it if you if you got a if you got a publication out of it in JAMA while you were in elementary school go for it (laughs) but research stays with you forever so if you had like in undergrad you were a part of some lab you were as a research assistant um, definitely put that for me I put I worked at a neuro-oncology lab and I included that in there I was you know, for this many years, I was at um, this lab working with so-and-so on this topic. And then you can talk about it within the character limit. Now, if I worked on a, I worked with another student 
with for a project so let's say nick came to me and said hey i have this great project i need someone to do the literature review for me though i did the database analysis you know i have the results but i need someone to do the review so that they can write the discussion and the introduction section of this so can you do that for me I did never talk to Nick's mentor. I don't know, like I know who his mentor is. I know the project and I actually did all the literature review, helped him write the manuscript. So when I go into the research experience, I would still put that as a research experience because I participated on this project, even though I may not have ever talked directly to Nick's mentor. And I would put him as the advisor on that project, like whoever the mentor was. So that would also be a project. If you worked on a case report, for example, that would be another uh, research experience. I will say this. If you worked with one mentor for like six case reports, please don't include six different research experiences for all of those because these are case ex experiences are typically a little bit broader. So if you worked on very, very small projects with that one person for a lot of projects then to have six different separate categories again as nick said it's going to dilute out the good things that you have yeah and i would i would keep this similar to like volunteering so like if you were a part of an interest group and you had a leadership role but you did a bunch of things in that leadership role well that was one role and then in your description you could put the various different things and then the publication section would be like your research productivity what came of all these different projects you worked on because um you don't necessarily need to have gotten a publication or a poster or a published abstract or anything for it to be a research experience. So really it's just, it's very similar to like the volunteering. With that being said, since we are getting into research, let's go to those, uh, the publication section. Um, so a lot of times, you know, we look at this data, like if you go on the, it's not the PD survey, what is it, the NRMP, match data yeah, right MP match data yeah if you look at this you'll see people have like seven publications 10 publications all this stuff but within that publication section there's also posters abstracts book chapters online publications non-peer-reviewed and peer-reviewed so let's say you never got a publication but on your various projects maybe in undergrad and in medical school you had several poster presentations you can include those. Or let's say you had an abstract that was published. You can include those as well. Let's say you helped with a book chapter. Uh, you can include that as well. So, you know, to just say a peer-reviewed publication is is not the only thing that could be included in this section. I think some students get a little confused with that when they see like, oh my gosh, all these people have all these publications. But, you know, all these things will count towards that. Yes, that's definitely an interesting thing to keep in mind. For example, when you look at the neurosurgery um, pile or for the NRMP match data, you'll see like 11 publications on there. That does not mean the student had actual 11 PubMed publications. Um, there have been several research projects done based on you know how many actual publications were actually done by those neurosurgery applicants. And what they found was they typically had one to 1.5, uh, like around 1.5 first author uh, first author publications with approximately two point something um, second or third author, uh, second author or onward publications. So they were typically involved in three to four publications in some manner 
Um, and then they had other things would be like posters or if they had some abstract published at a conference that they didn't attend and things like that. So those projects got them a lot more uh, publications because you include the poster, you include the abstract, you include the manuscript that was actually published as well. And maybe even the things that didn't get published. Yeah. And exactly like you said, like things, if you submitted something, you can still include it in there. Um, I would just, you know, be cautious with that. Don't just put like submitted this, submitted that. And then like you have nothing or like, you don't know if that'll like, if you didn't actually submit it, make sure you actually did submit it if you're going to put that there, but you can put something that wasn't accepted yet, basically. Yes. Um, and the other thing is like, let's say your project, you got like 10 posters out of it. I've kind of heard multiple things about this. Um, one at the very minimum, like the, the most stringent that I've heard is if you have different type of poster presentation, like you had a regional and then a national and then an international, you can include them because they're like, at different levels um if you had like three different or like three regionals for the same project and you post you uh, presented the same poster i've also been told you're not like you shouldn't include that because it's the same thing to be honest i don't know if you should or should not include it i don't know if you've heard anything different i've heard a very similar thing like one regional one national like that's fine uh, but if you presented two things, both regionally, like the same thing at, at your school's uh, symposium or what have you, as well as some local other conference, then to include both of them would not be wise just because it makes it look like you're just trying to pad your CV um, and just trying to, and they can kind of see through it if they look even the tiniest bit into like, what where you actually presented and what the title is i will say one thing which tripped me up and i i would recommend this for all other students if you're in the middle of a project let's say you presented at a regional conference let's say you worked on the project some more because it wasn't completed when you first presented it now you have a lot more data or you have different data so for example i did a meta-analysis initially on a project and I presented that data at our local conference. Now, that project changed because I had to do a database analysis on a university's patients. Now, it was the same project. I was looking at the same gene, but instead of doing a meta-analysis, which is a completely different beast than doing a database analysis, which is a primary research because you're, you have patients that have never been recorded down before, and you're trying to analyze their data and you're, you're coming up with brand new data that wasn't there before instead of a meta-analysis which is you compile the data that's been published and then you're analyzing that to give you higher power so i added that to my project now there technically speaking it's a completely different project now because one is a database analysis versus the other is a meta-analysis so i kept the same title when I presented the research again at another regional conference because I had so much more data. So I should have changed it to whatever title in 
University of Miami patients or wherever the university I got the database from. So change the title if your project has actually changed and you have like different data now than when you initially presented it because it is a different project. But when you have the same title at, like at, for your poster, if any PD sees that, they're not going to know what I presented. They're just going to say like, oh, he's putting the same thing, you know, on there like three times. But like, no, those are actually two separate projects that just happen to have this that I put the same title on, which, again, that's my fault. But consider that if you're changing your project drastically, then change the title accordingly. And if you do so, you can include it. Multi, you know, you can include that in there as well. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I also would have said those sound like very different projects, but I guess like there was confusion with the title because, yeah, that sounds like two completely different things that you did. Um, and was would that be two research experiences as well? Or do you think that's one research experience, but two like... So it's one research. It? So I would say it's one research experience because I'm publishing as, as like I combined the manuscript. So my um, PI actually wanted to add to our manuscript and have it accepted into a really nice journal. So he said, do the database and have the meta-analysis corroborate that. And now you're gonna have a solid paper that any like journal is gonna accept who, like into this field. So, you know, since I've combined them and that's only one manuscript, I would say it's only one research experience. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so th this is why we wanted to talk about this a little bit more because sometimes that can get confusing with like the research experience and the, like what counts as a publication, all that stuff. Um, let's see what else. There were other, there's a section for like other articles, scientific monograph. Um, then we talked about like the peer reviewed journal articles, abstracts, all those things, oral presentations, poster presentations, all these things you can include on your application. Um, and I definitely recommend it if you have those. Um, and I have one thing to say. If you're looking into going for very highly competitive specialities such as dermatology or plastic surgery, neurosurgeries, those, those are fields with very high publication counts. And they will look at your PubMed. So if you publish into all of these journals, which are online free journals, which are fine to publish into, you know, they'll add up to your account. But and then they look at PubMed and there's nothing on there. It does look a little bad that you're you're not doing research to the level that they would want it, you know, in like that it's being published in journals that are indexed, PubMed indexed, basically. So they if you're going into really competitive specialities, you should definitely make sure you have like at least one solid project that you can claim first or second authorship in that is in PubMed because otherwise they're going to look, you're going to list all these things on your application and they're going to look at PubMed and they're going to like, he's not, he or she's not doing like legit research. They're just, because a lot of these online journals some of them are great don't get me wrong you can find quality research in some of them but the fact that they're not vetted as much uh, makes for the fact that some of these some of the research projects that show up on there are kind of bogus honestly like you have no idea how the research was done how carefully they you know, uh, looked at the data, if they actually did what they claimed to have done. And there's no real re peer review process 
that a lot of these established journals have. Therefore, most solid researchers will not take them that seriously. So just keep that in mind when you're doing research. But again, those are for really highly uh, competitive specialities that really want research. Yeah, for sure. And I'm by no means an expert, but there, there's this, I'm, like definitely include the things if you did them and you have them, but also think about the quality when you're like, you know, early in medical school, like think about the quality and where this is being published. Um, Cause like you said, if you look at your PubMed ID or something, um, you would see, Hey, this guy doesn't have any, but he supposedly has these publications. Um, so I think that's, you know, very good perspective is to think about the quality as well. Um, and I would also keep all these publications on your CV. Like we were saying, keep track of these from the beginning. Um, I remember I, you know, when we were doing ERAS, it was like, Oh, what was the, they're like, they have a weird format, like mm -hmm. name period, la like last name period, then first initial or something. And I like, didn't have somebody's like middle initial or something. And it was just frustrating. Um, but I would definitely just keep track of all the information related to your projects and your publications. Keep, you know, the, like uh, a nice log of it. And then if you put it on your CV as well, if anybody asks for it, you also have it ready to go. Hey, I have this publication, you know, here, re read about it. It's on my CV. Um, I will say in terms of presenting the research you're doing, always present anything you've done, present it somewhere. Like, because you don't know if it's going to get published, but if you present it, you did it. If you didn't present it, it never happened. So you can put it in your research experiences, but it's not going to count towards anything because you've never really done anything with it. Like you had it, but no one ever got to see it. So what's the point of that? So even if it's something as simple as a case presentation, especially if you're not looking to go into like super heavy research field, like even if you're doing a case presentation, some of them don't get published because there are so many out there. But your local conferences, they'll take almost anything. So if you want to present a case, pres uh, you know, if you have a really cool uh, case report, you can present that. And I'm not saying present the same thing multiple times, but definitely present everything that you're doing at one place at least is uh, my goal, is my advice. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think one thing um, I didn't like know about this until our medical school is super into it, like service learning projects mm -hmm. as well, which isn't really like primary research but it is still a project and you can commonly present those at uh, various conferences so things like i don't know you set up a volunteering event and coordinated it and this is like what you did and all that stuff sometimes you can actually present those as a poster and you'll you know now you have another poster presentation and i just didn't realize that but that's another idea and so i would definitely say if you're working on any project at the very least you can present it as a poster um and it's a good experience too. Like I've had a lot of fun at conferences, just going and presenting a poster, talking to people, hearing other projects and stuff like that too. So also national poster presentations are a big deal because if you're going to national conferences, first of all, you, you need, do need to have some um, research that, I mean, research that you've spent a lot of time into um, to be able to present it at a national conference for the most part, unless you just got really good data really early on for some reason. But for the most part, 
posters that have been presented at national conferences are not projects that were done in a day or two. They usually take a lot of time. But if you've spent time on a project, don't think that like, oh, I didn't get, you know, great results, that it's not going to be great research. Like, oh, no one wants to see negative results. Although there is a bias on the, you know, research field with negative results versus positive results. But definitely apply for those national conferences because you don't know when you'll get accepted. And I would say continued, like, you know, attempted at multiple different national conferences that fit within the purview of your research. Because one, it looks great that you have a national con like national poster presentation, or if you're lucky, you, if you get selected for an oral presentation, that would, even, that would be great. But either of those looks good. And when you go to those conferences, for, it, you get the chance to connect with faculty at the top of their line in whatever field you're trying to go into. It's a great place to connect. Um, some of them even have things for medical students, like lectures for medical students about application process. Um, and you can meet like powerhouses of the field. And you never know when that's going to help you when you go apply for residency or apply for an away rotation or or if you want to do further research with someone in particular, if you meet them at a conference, they're going to take you a lot more ser seriously than if you just send them an email. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Definitely. And, um, you know, the funny thing is, and I think we've actually talked about this before, like, it's interesting when you're an undergraduate student and you, like, are trying to get research versus when you're a medical student trying to, like, get a research project. I found it to be a lot easier to, like, like people take you more seriously as a medical student, right? Like, have you experienced that too? I will say it's the opposite of when I was an undergrad student. In undergrad, I wanted projects and no one was willing to give them. As a medical student, people want to give me projects, but I, you know, my time is valuable. I can only pick the ones that I think will benefit me the most. Um, and again, that's not to say like, oh, I'm this great researcher, but everyone has ideas and as a medical student you'll gain a lot of knowledge um, plus your school will want to help you quite a bit you know to get research and things like that a lot of your faculty will be conducting research so they'll give you the opportunity but you do have to know just because a research project has been offered to you does not mean you have to take it take your time very seriously you can do research in almost any field you want to with a lot of great people. Now, not to say that you'll, you'll be able to do research with anyone you want. That's far from the truth. But keep in mind that if you want to do a specific speciality, doing research is not only the means to do a research project and get a you know a higher publication count, but it's a great way to meet someone in the field and get their letter of recommendation further down the line. Um, if you, especially for competitive specialities, but even without, like if you want to do general surgery or if you want to do something and you're working with someone in that field for you know like you you've been doing projects with them and they like the way you work. They're going to recommend you if they have a residency, if they're part of a residency program, you're going to be at a high end on their list compared to someone that they don't know. So don't waste your time doing research with someone in a field in which you do not plan to go. That's one of my biggest advice, because it's not just about what research you do. It's about who you know, 
which is a huge deal in residency. So, yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. A uh, few points that you said, um, and just kind of bringing this back to the data. So, uh, again, um, what percent of program directors in the survey cons uh, used, how did they word it? In involvement and interest in research uh, for inviting to interview, the percent is 41.1, actually lower that's than very I, low. lower yes. than I expected. Um, let's see, involvement, interest in research rated as a 3.6 out of five. So, and again, I think this is the overall data. If you go, I'm sure if you go to like a very competitive one, like maybe like neurosurgery or something, it'll be higher. I'm, I'm almost positive. Much, much, much higher. Yeah. Like if you can't, you can almost not get an interview if you don't do significant research. Yeah. And I know a lot of students do like gap years yes. to get the research and stuff. Yes. So I would say for this one, for sure, look in your individual uh, specialty of interest. Yes. But overall, I, I it, it almost just based on this data, um, it seems like people value it a lot, but this information is actually lower and kind of like surprised me. So I think a lot of it is the fact that internal medicine, first of all, a lot of the primary care specialities do not care as much for research and they consist a lot. There's a lot of programs from those specialities. So I'm assuming that plays a big role in why it's ranked lower. Um, Within these specialities, however, if you're planning on going to an academic program, research is still going to be valuable. Now, it won't be the most valuable thing, but if you're trying to go to mass gen, or if you're trying to go super at a very academic place, even if the research itself does not like cause you to garner their attention, if you worked with a faculty member that's great in academics, they will contact people for you. So if you have a good mentor that you've been working in, and academics is a very small field. So if, you, if you're working with someone in research, the research you did while with them may not really get you a spot. But the fact that you worked with them and they know you, and if they liked your work ethic and who you are as a person, if they're willing to call other programs for you or recommend you to places, that goes a very long way because they all have friends in a lot of places. So academia is a very small place. And if you're going to interact with someone from academia, do a good job at it. And if you do so, it will certainly help you. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good uh, point that you made. Let's see. So do you want to move on to the yes, uh, medical let, school honors and awards? And oh, I guess there's one last thing we forgot to mention. Um, again, I don't think anybody knows what will happen, but with this pass fail step one, and then, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's just going to be step two is going to be the new step one. Uh, so your step two score will matter. A lot of people mention like research um, as one aspect that might be something that comes up as more important. Um, I mean, I don't think anybody really knows for sure, but again, you know, in a couple of years or something, we might see this data is, is different and, and that actually now they care more about research because of that. So just something to keep in mind. Yes, but I, I did want to say, you know, we, we've talked about with uh, Dr. Bachman, who is one of our mentors, and we've discussed this trend and some of the, in the field of there is 
a lot of interest in research and medical students now that step one is pass fail and that may be hurting them academically. So while it's important to do research, keep in mind that you still need to learn the same things that you did and step two still plays a big role in your application. So to do really well on research, but to mess up on step two, I think that's a bad trade-off for most people. So it's okay to do research and it's actually even good to do research, but that should not be your end all be all. Um, just because step one is pass fail because you will still need the information you need from from step one to do well on step two so you should still spend a lot of time studying and then if you have extra time and you want to do research you should definitely pursue that yeah for sure i definitely agree with you um so medical school honors and let's do medical school honors and awards you know for this section um I didn't have a ton on there, to be honest. I put like my scholarships that I got a few, like I think I've had two. Um, this isn't the professional memberships, this is a, a separate section. Uh, I don't know, do you have anything else to say about that? I also only had a scholarship that I put in there. I, I don't think most people have too many really awards in medical school, but so it's okay if you really don't have a ton in there. Um, you know, I, most people I know who really don't have anything in there still have been managing to get interviews just fine. So just keep that in mind. It, not all of the sections that they list out are something you need to fill. But if you have something, that's great. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you have something that you think will really benefit your application to put here, like put it. I'm, j I'm just like saying, yeah, I don't think it's, you know the biggest uh most important section yes. we have out of here the next section is one of my favorites it's the hobby section and to be honest it's one of your most important sections yeah i mean so okay so just again we're fourth year students we don't know exactly what pds um are looking at in these applications or interviewers all this stuff but i I've, i can't tell you how many times i've heard an m4 student say Oh, I was in an interview and they brought up my hobbies right away, right? I just had my first interview this past week and I had three interviewers. All three of them asked me about my hobbies. So I'm going to say that that's going to be a recurring theme and that everyone is going to be interested and in not just, you know, how well you did academically, but who you are as a person. Because, you know, they're, at the end of the day, they're going to be spending a lot of time with you and they probably want to know, like, you know, what interests you and what type of person you are. And are you super boring or not? Like, are you going to be fun to work with? Do you have passion outside of medicine and things like that? Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's actually, I was told this, I, I forget who told me this the first time, but I've actually heard it um, a few times now, like the 3 a.m., test have you yes. heard of this it's yes. like if i was stuck at 3 a.m at the hospital with this person overnight would i be like cool with them like or am i going to be incredibly bored or you know and it's just i think that you know this section kind of represents that scenario like is this an interesting person is this somebody i can hang out with and somebody who can talk about interesting things because um, at the end of the day if you are stuck at 3 a.m like you don't want to be with somebody who's like boring or just can't hold a conversation. Um, and then the other thing though, it, that's really um, interesting about this section or important, I guess important to mention uh, as I've heard a lot of students say, Oh, I don't have time for hobbies or interests. And Victor and I both, both hold this opinion pretty strongly that 
you do have time in medical school for your interests. No, you don't have a lot of time. Um, you have to be very careful and you have to um, be very intentional with your time, but you have time for your hobbies and interests. And you don't need to be like an Olympic diver or something crazy or you know do something every single day. It could be something as simple as reading books and maybe you read an hour a week. Like that's fine. Like maybe you just like working out and going to the gym playing sports like whatever it is it can be literally anything i will say when you list those hobbies be specific don't just say netflix that doesn't do anything for anyone if you're really interested in cinematography or if you really love watching horror movies say something like you know a horror uh genre fanatic yeah or something like that that gives them something to talk to you about because if you say netflix what are they going to talk to you about oh i like netflix too no so when you say a hobby give a little bit of specific for example let's say you write you want to write down that you're learning the guitar you could write down you know beginning beginner guitarist um learning on an acoustic guitar with my seagull s6 they might ask you about that don't be like, oh, yeah, um, I have a guitar. I've never played it, but, you know, I'm learning tomorrow. So just you can put a lot of things on there that you do for daily interest. I'm going to assume no one studies 24-7, that everyone's spending some time to do things that they like. But just write them in a way in which the interest comes across, as well as the fact that they can ask you about it, and then you can talk to them about it. Yeah, for sure. And and the other thing is, let's say you say you're a beginner guitarist. Like, there, you know, a lot of people play guitar, right? So there's a chance that your interviewer plays the guitar as well. And if you don't know anything, like, it's okay to be a beginner. But if you don't know anything, like, they're going to know you made that up. Like, and again, that's not good. So put, put something real. Um, but I would definitely make it interesting. And the other thing that I heard from a lot of people as well is, like, the hobby section is, is important because there's all this talk now with like burnout and, and you have to kind of have that like wellness aspect to you because um, residency programs don't want somebody who is going to burn out like in the first month, they want somebody who knows how to balance their time and take care of themselves. And that's another reason why they care about this section is because they want somebody who has a little bit of a life outside of medicine because they will probably do better. Everybody knows like residency is really hard and they don't want like burned out residents, right? Definitely. And again, it's like, it's definitely something that keeps you grounded, keeps you sane because it's not just work all the time. Even no matter how passionate you are about it, the hospital 24 seven does not, you know, correlate well with mental wellness. Um, and just one other example I wanted to give, um, I didn't include this personally in my hobby, uh, but for example, if you're a mobile gamer, you love to play Call of Duty mobile games, you spent a summer on it and you got to the legendary rank, you pushed with your friends, you know, like you can put that. That is a that is a great hobby. It shows teamwork. It shows the fact that you have fun with your friends. This is something you use to keep contact with your friends who may be far away. And it requires a lot of good communication. If you're playing these first-person shooter type games, 
that require a lot of teamwork with other people and you got to be quick on your feet and a lot of things and again it's just fun it's just something that if you really did like i did you know and i did get to the legendary rank which is the highest you can get in the mobile <laughs> gaming but i did that over a summer and I, I played it for a while but that summer we decided to push our rank to the highest limit possible and we got it the only reason i didn't put it is because the hobby section unfortunately has a very very small character limit I don't remember what the limit is, but it basically only allows for six to seven sentences total. So you can only write. You if can that, e I don't even think yeah. it was that. I think it was like three bullet points or like one bullet point or like, a, a, let's say three hobbies and one bullet point each. I think that's what yeah. I could get. Yeah. So you can either like list out all your hobbies, which is not the preferred way to do it. So you could all write down like, oh, mobile gaming, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, scuba diving, hiking, guitar, whatever. Like you can either list it out or you can write down two or three good ones and then give a little bit such as um, guitar, like beginning acoustic, acoustic guitarist, uh, trying to incorporate more songs into my repertoire or scuba diving. Um, have been scuba diving in Florida for the past two years and had a great dive in Iceland for so-and-so or Brazilian jiu-jitsu started blah blah so you can write down that one nice sentence so that they can ask you about it which is the preferred method rather than listing out seven things that you may have done and I think you, you said scuba diving came up in your interview too right yes so one of the residents is also a scuba diver and he's like yeah so he's like you die and I'm like yeah I I have been scuba diving and I actually started got my certification during medical school uh, and we talked about good diving spots near where his program is I was like oh do you have any good diving spots and he's like yeah there's a ton and he's like you can just go off the shore and there's a lot of places and we started talking about it we were really vibing and I think that's a great thing if you can do that with an interviewer where you're just having a nice conversation as two people, not as an interviewer and an interviewee, I think that shows that you connected really well. So that's, a, that's an opportunity that you get over your hobbies. Again, that doesn't mean you need to put hobbies that are common that people will you know, have in common with you so that you can talk to them about it. Honestly, I've heard that if you have some very interesting hobbies, put them because they're unique and they will definitely come up in interviews. And people remember you. So don't put weird ones like I don't I don't know what what to put in there, but don't put something that would not show you in a good light, possibly B use your judgment for that. But definitely unique is definitely good. If you're a licorice maker, for example, put that in there. I would love to talk to you about that for very honestly. What do you think, Nick? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I think it keeps you interesting. Yeah. Um, and, and you know what else? Just kind of talking about this. Um, I noticed when I started doing more hobbies in medical school that my performance got better. Like the numbers that I got, like my test scores went up because I spent more time for myself. And so I think like, you know, it is just very important to, to keep up with your hobbies in medical school and, and you'll, you'll do better. You'll do better as well. And I think, you know, don't do it for ERAS, but at the same time, it, it will definitely, definitely help your ERAS. Um, 
you know i saw i saw a meme on on reddit and it was like a guy i think he played like runescape or something and he put it on his eras application i just found it was funny and i came up in an interview apparently i mean this is like a reddit yeah. comment but it's still funny um I mean, you can put Pokemon Go in there if you want. Yeah, again, yeah. I don't know how all the interviewers are going to take that, but again, like if you're really interested in something, just use your judgment. But hobbies are definitely important. Um, so let's talk. We, well, we talked about the home address and the, the hometown's address already in the personal. Um, other awards. I think we kind of yeah, discussed we kinda like, covered it, that unless well. it, like if it was something important, you can definitely put that. Use your judgment. Uh, I think your advisors will definitely help you with that. But yeah, I think, I think a a really good topic is the letters of yes. recommendation. Yes. So um, just kind of want to go over real quickly the different um, letters of recommendation for medical school. So the first one, it's sometimes called the dean's letter. It's really the MSPE medical student performance evaluation. This isn't sometimes they group like websites and stuff will group this in with the letters. This is really something separately. Uh, this is something separate from the other letters that we will um, get into some more. But there's the standard uh, standard letters of evaluation. This is usually for emergency medicine, but for instance in anesthesiology, I saw that some programs were starting to incorporate this. This wouldn't be a typical um, letter of recommendation. It would be like, it, it's standardized. So it basically has boxes like, how do you know this person? What percent, like top percent of students are they in? Like all this stuff. Um, and then there's the typical letter of recommendation, which is similar similar to like what you did for like medical school. You ask somebody who you worked with, um, it should pretty much always be a clinician, like an MD, DO uh, attending, not, not residents. Um, and basically it's just like you know a typical they'll write it for you and it's also important that you check the box I, I don't think anybody would recommend you not check this box where it says you don't read it so you won't necessarily get to see it but it'll be you know usually just them writing a letter for you um do you have anything else yeah so i want to say for the mspe that's a you know definitely a big thing that we did not know about when we first kind of started this whole process. I didn't know what exactly was included in the MSPE or the Dean's letter. I thought it was just going to be someone, you know, writing what they thought about me uh, from the Dean's office. But it is, as Nick said, it's much more structured than that. It talks about, yeah, so we'll, we'll have a, you know, a section for that. But compared to the letter of recommendation, it's a lot more um, uh, rigid and fixed. Now, for your personal statement. Well, well, I want to just say a few things about letter of recommendation, if that's yeah, right with Yeah, you. so I was going to say, oh, okay. Before we get into the personal statement. Oh, um, I was going to say about, okay, go ahead. Yeah, go, yes. no, go on. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, compared to the letter of recommendation, it's a lot more rigid. So for letters of recommendation, what you're hoping that they write about is your personal work ethic, you know? how you are as a person, how you are with patients, because they see you with the, the people that you were asking for letters of recommendation have hopefully seen you with patients, have hopefully seen you take care of patients, have hopefully seen you work with residents, other medical students, with nursing staff. And they can talk about your ability to work in a team, to take care of patients, to go above and beyond for your patient. They should be able to write about your medical knowledge. Um, they will usually 
you know, kind of like lets you know what they think about you, like during your month-long rotation, because your most of your letters of recommendations are going to come from these core rotations or your elective rotations during which you time spend a lot of time with an attending. Now, I wanted to, you know, letters of recommendation are super important because it's basically a faculty member from a specific specialty endorsing you for usually their own specialty. You can include letters of recommendation from someone from other specialities as well, but it's not going to be strong, as strong as someone from theirs. For example, I'm applying into internal medicine and my fourth year sub-internship in internal medicine, um, the letter of recommendation I get from that is going to be evaluated much stronger than any of my other letters of recommendation because that's exactly the role I would be fulfilling for the next three years. And they want to know how good I'm, am I in that role? How good am I with the team? How good am I in a residency program? Yeah, for sure. And and just to, to bring it back to the, the data, um, the percent of PDs who considered it uh, considered a letter of recommendation from within that specialty um, uh, considered for deciding the interview was 85.1%, which is the highest one out of all the things listed. Um, and then let's see, letters. Letters of recommendation within. I actually can't see it in the rated, but I mean, if you think about it, 85.1% as the biggest one. I mean, that's a huge thing. And and like Vikram said, I mean, that's somebody in the specialty saying, hey, this person would be a good fit. Um, if I were to just give some recommendations for students, like if you're not a fourth year, I would say one, ask early and ask for more than you think. Because yeah, it'd be great if you had, you know, all these amazing letters come in, but sometimes letter writers fall through all these things. It's really, really good to have backup, even from third year. If you're in your third year clerkship, maybe you're applying internal medicine, you can get an internal medicine one. Yeah, fourth year one is stronger, most likely, but if you can get a solid third year one as a backup, that's a great, uh, a really great thing. Um, I think you should really try to get somebody who knows you so it's it's a much stronger letter imagine reading a letter that's very generic versus reading a letter that is personalized and and clearly shows that this person knows uh like this physician knows this student really really well and then finally think about getting the letter from somebody who is important themselves like a program director or a chair from your school um i mean I've heard kind of mixed things, but some places or from some things I've heard is like, they care a lot about who wrote it. Other times it's like, as long as it's from within the specialty, it's fine. So I've kind of heard um, both ways. And then did you want to talk about the, the chair letter? So I forgot to mention that. Before we even go into the chair letter, I yeah. wanted, I wanted to talk about the, when you're asking for a letter of rec, as you, as Nick said, ask early. So don't wait until you finish your rotation and you're never going to see that attending again. Don't wait until then. Please try to ask them while you can in person. I've noticed that asking in person always leads to, first of all, you get an answer in person and you get to see their expression when you ask them. If they're like, 
eh, like, you know, they're, they're kind of hesitating. They're like, sure, I'll write you one. You don't want to include that. Please, like, that's not a letter you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to definitely include this letter. Versus some letter writers, first of all, will offer to write you a letter. Those are going to be some of the strongest ones. Um, but if you ask them like, hey, uh, and ask them in this specific way, don't ask them, hey, can you write me a letter? They can. Ask them, would you be comfortable in writing me a strong letter of recommendation? That's what you're getting. You can get a letter of recommendation from anyone. They can write something bad on there if they want it. They don't, but I'm just saying anyone can write you a letter of recommendation. Ask them how comfortable they are in writing you a really good one that gives you a chance at a residency. So if you ask them, like, would you be comfortable in writing me a, would you feel comfortable in writing me a strong letter of recommendation? Um, after having worked with me for so-and-so. And that leads them, that gives them the opportunity to say no without just, you know, seeming obnoxious. They can be like, hey, I really haven't interacted with you that much and it's going to be hard to write you a strong letter. Like I can write one, but I'll, I won't be, it won't be strong. And I've received this feedback once before and I was like, thank you for letting me know that because I don't want to waste your time and I definitely want, don't want you to write a lukewarm letter that I will then submit to programs. That's the worst thing you can do. So be clear with your expectations. Second thing, do it in person. Email is okay and if it's better than nothing, but you want to strike while the iron's hot. Like you want them to remember you when they write the letter of recommendation. If you go six months from your rotation and you ask them, I guarantee you they forgot about most of what you did during that rotation. That brings me to my third point. If you're asking someone for a letter of recommendation, you need to give them your CV. You need to give them at least your CV. Uh, when you apply, you'll need to give them your personal statement. If you're already in fourth year, you'll most likely have that. So they can kind of read that and incorporate some of that into it. Um, and one thing, and this is a this is a personalized tip that I don't know if a lot of students use, but they should, is ask your letter writers if they want you to send them like a list of interactions that they've had with you. Um, for example, if you did something particularly outstanding during the rotation it seems like bragging when you send that to them but you know if you have an encounter like that put it on there uh if for example you did something great for a patient that was noticed by everyone put that in there like you know like okay like put the different examples of those encounters and you can send that again you have to judge the who you're sending it out to and ask them before you do this so say like hey um i've like i have a written account of salient experiences that i've had during this rotation that might help you in being able to write me a strong letter of recommendation this is after they agree by the way so like, would you want them? Like, would you want them so that, you know, uh, it may help you in writing the letter of recommendation? That's one thing you can do. So I usually personally like to do this with most of my letters. They have the different things because they don't remember all the things you do. They have so many things going on in their head. And when you give them these specific examples of what you've done in that rotation like oh i worked with the residents and you know i created this sheet for the for other residents to kind of go through copd in a much more systematic manner or like to get up-to-date um, articles on copd treatment great or like oh you know uh, me and the other medical student we noticed that this patient's birthday was coming up and 
uh, we kind of organized this small little, not like a party, but just like, you know, we had uh, a streamer or something, uh, things like that. So I know it seems like bragging, but I promise you it, it will help them write you a better letter, letter of recommendation and they won't remember that by themselves. And they don't care about writing you a letter of recommendation as much as you do about getting a great letter of recommendation. So don't be ashamed or don't be sh like shy in anything you do with this because it a lot of your future depends on this uh, the last thing i want to say about the letter of recommendation is if you don't want to do what i just suggested you can ask the residents to write down what their thoughts about you were you know and then they you can you can ask the residents to put in these examples into their evaluation that they will then give to the program director or whoever you've asked for your letter of recommendation. And that's another way of getting the same thing across. Plus the residents can write down what their thoughts were. So if you worked really strongly with a resident, definitely ask them to give a written email or some form of like writing evaluation to the person that you're, that's writing your letter of recommendation. Those are my biggest tips for that. Yeah, I think those are, are really great tips. Um, and you touched on this a little bit, but I think like for me, it, it's, it always feels awkward to ask for a letter. I mean, I don't know if you feel the same way, but like I yes. always feel awkward asking for a letter. Like I feel like, oh, they don't know me enough. Even if I worked with this person for like weeks, like one-on-one, -on -one, like I'm always like, oh, they don't know me enough or, oh, you know, they don't whatever the excuse is. But at the end of the day, like you need this letter first off. So you got to do it. Um, try to pick the best person, the best people that you can to write it for you. But also they understand you need the letter and they're, they're almost expecting it in a way, like, especially if you're a good student and you're interested in their specialty, like they know it's coming. Um, it's okay. And it's not awkward. They needed letters as well. You're not, you're, you're very likely not the first letter that they have written unless like they're a brand new attending that just started working with students or something. Um, so I would just, you know, it's not awkward. Just, just go ahead and do it. It's never been awkward for me. I've always kind of felt weird doing it. And then I did it and went through and asked and it was perfectly fine every single time. Uh, speaking of which, uh, one thing to keep in mind, don't ask too late, especially if you're applying in your fourth year. Uh, it's never great to have to wait for a letter writer to submit your application. That's the worst feeling in the world because everything else is ready and you're just waiting for them. And that's a required letter for some reason. You don't want to be in that position. It's okay to have an extra letter that you're waiting for at that time. And if it doesn't, you know, get submitted in time, like even if it gets submitted later, that's fine. But you want to be on time with those letters. So if you're trying to get a letter in September, you need to have them know by day two at the latest that you're hoping for a letter. What can you do? Like, and you can do this for other letters too. You can, you know, within the first couple days of you working with a person, uh, you know, you can ask the residents who would be good to ask for a letter because they usually know who who's willing and able to write a letter of recommendation for students um, and who writes really well, actually. So ask the residents about that issue. And once you've decided on what faculty you want to write you the letter, if you, if you have decided, ask them early on, 
hello, um, you know, I'm really interested in the speciality and I just want to know, like, what are your expectations? Because I want to exceed them so that you can write me a strong letter of recommendation. If you say, uh, say it like that, I don't think anyone's going to fault you for being too direct. If anything, they're going to appreciate it. Now, you, you have to deliver on that if you want a letter. You can't underperform and then expect them to write you a good letter. But at least this way, they'll make whatever their expectations are clear. And as long as you work hard and you really try your best, I think there, you have a good shot of getting it. Yeah, for sure. I think that's really great. I use that. I think all my letters, I, I went up to them maybe halfway th through the rotation and I kind of started the conversation as like, let's have some, a feedback session. Can I meet with you and just get feedback? And then I integrated, I'm hoping to get a letter by the end of this rotation, a strong letter. And, you know, so I want your feedback based on ways I can improve what I've been doing well on what I, what I can do better with. And, and it, I think it'll really help them to, to later on in the rotation, when they look at you kind of take mental notes about like, this is something I can write about in their letter. And then later on, by the end of the rotation, it was like so easy for me to like officially ask for a letter. It was like, um, Oh, here you go. Sorry. So it, yeah, it was so easy to, um, officially ask them for a letter i'd be like oh yeah by the way um i wanted to discuss and they're like oh yeah the letter of recommendation i got you and it was like such a smooth conversation so i think that's something um that was like a really good point that you brought up uh, i think next we're gonna talk about the personal statement and um, oh actually before Let's that just we, say the, we, chair the chair letter, letter. yeah uh, so brief you know. So the chair letter is a formalized version. Uh, it's not a letter of recommendation in the typical sense. Um, they typically talk about how your performance has been during your clinical years, as well as how you did during the rotation for that particular specialty, such as, for example, internal medicine chair letter. So the internal medicine chair will have access to your evaluations so they will most likely include things such as like, oh, he performed this way um, for so-and-so and they liked working with him or whatever the evaluation kind of says, they'll, they'll put that in a little bit. They might add in like, oh, he had four honors out of six total clerkships. Uh, during my time with Vikram, he has been so-and-so and they'll incorporate some of the personal stuff that they know about you, but it's a, definitely a more formalized letter and it's a little bit more rigid in structure. It's not expected to be a personal letter as in the chair knows me because the chair almost certainly does not know every student that's applying to that specialty like on an individual basis. And they most likely have not worked with even half of the students like in a personal capacity as a medical student in a hospital but they just have all this information and then they use that to synthesize the chair letter yeah and you have to really look at your individual specialty if this is something that's needed yeah. i know like internal medicine needs it but like anesthesiology i think one program like said it would be nice to have one and that was it yeah. so i would just say you know look at what your specialty needs so let's talk about the, the personal statement. Yes. So the personal statement is, I mean, it's kind of like what you, it's, it sounds like. Um, it's, you basically want it to be one page. Uh, anything longer than one page, 
I don't think I've even heard that some program directors like don't even print out the second yeah. page. One page is like 630 words. Something, something like that. Like that. Yeah. 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 Uh, one page on like a normal word document, I guess like you can figure out when you're actually doing ERAS, like the exact characters and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, when you, when you apply to um, medical school, you want to talk about your journey and how you decided to become a physician. Whereas here, it's more talking about your specialty. Um, and some people will actually write a personalized personal statement where they'll include a specific program or why they want to include the program um, at the end of that personal statement. Um, so now that we have an understanding of what it is, just some tips for the personal statement that I'd recommend. Similar to keeping track of your CV, keep track of meaningful experiences you've had throughout medical school because sometimes it might turn into a personal statement. Like you saw this really sick patient and you realized you liked this aspect of medicine. That's something that maybe you can write about later on. So I would just say keep um, track of those experiences. I like the notes section on my phone. I just keep it out. I'll write something down really quick Um, because who knows what can turn into. So, yeah. So as Nick said, personal statement kind of isn't, now to answer why medicine you're already in medicine it's not to answer why you want to become a physician because when they take you in you will already be a physician or not a physician you already be a doctor now they want to know why that speciality why you would be a good fit why the speciality would be a good fit for you as well as the fact that what what the journey was that took you to kind of getting to the place where you decided, no, this is your passion. This is something you want to do for the rest of your life. Now, a lot of people start off with talking about why they wanted to go into medicine, but one of the pitfalls is talking too much about why you went into medicine or medical school or whatever have you. If if a whole paragraph of yours is spent talking about, uh, this is why I was interested in going into medical school, um, then it's too much. So you want to really kind of cut to the chase if you want to include it at all. Um, As Nick said, starting early is important. When you write down the meaningful experiences, you want to talk about, one, describe the experience objectively. And then two, what did you learn from it? Why was it important enough that you felt that you had to write it down? So if you had a meaningful patient interaction, if you had a meaningful interaction with a faculty member, you were really impressed by, you know, this internal medicine doctor's breadth of knowledge. And you were like, oh my gosh, that's someone I want to emulate. You know, write that down. Write down what effect it had on you. And then when you're going to write down your personal statement, like all of these, you'll have a list of things that you can use as like a body of paragraph rather than just having a lot of fluff. So you can, the more examples, the more specific examples you have, the more stories that you can incorporate, the stronger your letter is going to be. And the more choices you have for that, the better it's going to come out. So you don't want to be thinking about, you know, back to M2 year or back to like, you know, your first rotation in M3 year when you had this great interaction with a patient and you forgot it because you had so many meaningful interactions but that one interaction would have gone really well with your personal statement but now you don't have it anymore or or even if you want to write about it you just don't remember the details or 
some of the things that you might that might have impacted you at the time yeah yeah exactly i think that's that's awesome um and just to kind of bring this back to the data um the overall percent who used this was 83.8 for the personal statements this is the second highest one and then also it was rated as a 3.9 so 3.9 i'd say is like medium maybe on the lower end of of these but the percent who used it was a lot so it's something that i think is valuable and is used but it's probably not the end all be all what i've heard is basically like some people have amazing personal statements maybe five ten percent five ten percent of people have awful personal statements that have typos and that hurt you maybe they got too personal um but most people are somewhere in the middle which is kind of like okay it's good you know it'll get you by and kind of check that box for you um I think some, and from what I've heard from a lot of people, is some specialties care more about this than others. Um, things like family medicine and psychiatry, I think I've heard, again, I don't know if this, this is true, we can bring them up. Uh, you can look at the data yourself on the program director survey, but they tend to care more about the personal statement than, say, other specialties would as well. Yes. So as kind of Nick alluded to the fact like, oh, you get too personal, like what does that mean? So I hate the fact that this is the case and me and Nick have had discussions with other medical students as well, but how personal should a personal statement be and what should its focus be? So one of the things that we've kind of been streamlined uh, to think, at least for residency application, is you don't want to offend anyone. I hate the fact that this is the way it is, but... It's not okay to just impress one, like, you know, impress one or two people and then have like one or two people that are going to throw your letter uh, application out because they didn't like it. Because the chances of that, the one or two people liking it are very low. Most likely what happens is they read the personal statement. They're like, okay, it's cool. And then they keep the application and it doesn't really affect you too much for most specialities. Now, if someone doesn't like it, now that's a different story. So if they don't think too much of it, it doesn't negatively impact you because most people's personal statements are average. Now, I'm not saying you need to be average if you have a great personal story or if you're an amazing writer, um, then great. You know, you can try to write a really great personal statement. But do know that the 5 to 10% that had horrendous personal statements are the people who attempted to write a really, really good one. And in that attempt made a really, really, like they tried to write a really, really unique one and ended up botching it and made such a bad one that it'll get them kicked out of a lot of programs. So although it kind of seems bad to just try to play it safe, I know a lot of students kind of take that advice and not to say that don't include anything like really personal, but for things such as like, okay, don't be too religious in your personal statement. Like if you come off as someone who is trying to preach in your um, personal statement and if you come up super religious, maybe that'll connect with someone, but that'll get you thrown out of a lot of places that may not really share the same point of view as you do. And I'm not saying whatever theirs or yours is right, but you just want to kind of play it a little safe, which I hate the fact that it is the, that way 
because that's why personal statements have become so boring. Um, for residency applications, once you've looked at five, you've looked at them all, kind of, because there's nothing new after the, the first five. There's some really great ones, and they'll, they'll have personal stories, which is fine. Um, but for the most part, most personal statements are just there to kind of get the job done, which is sad, but it's true. So, and I think, I think, you know, one thing you were saying, I don't know if all of them necessarily fall into that. They were awful because they tried to be so good. Yes. But I think there's also put some thought into it. Yeah. Write something, you know, nice. Um, Don't, don't leave typos. You know, I mean, that's just so silly. Like if you just have it grammatically incorrect throughout and typos and all this stuff, just have somebody proofread it. It's really simple. Um, I think that could also put you in. Because imagine like you're applying to be a, a physician at a place, like a resident, and you have such sloppy work. I mean, that just really, and this is true with every part of your um, application as well. And I, I, one thing that I've commonly heard is like in psychiatry specifically, some students will talk about like their own issues with psychiatry. And I think, you know, in, in some ways that's like makes sense. You dealt with something yourself, therefore you want to help others. But also, like, I think it could put some some um, concern into the mind of the program director. Like, is this person suitable to, to work in this residency? And, again, we're not the ones to say what can and can't be in a personal statement. We're students who've heard this. These are just things that have come up that we've been told from program directors, from faculty, um, and from other students, residents, etc. One thing I will say with great confidence is you're not here to write a case report. So if you're describing a patient, you know, patient scenario that you experienced in, you know, during your rotation, which everyone will, and that's totally fine and expected actually that you talk about a personal experience you had with patients. I've seen personal statements where there's there's a paragraph and a half of them constantly talking about this patient presented with this this is this and they're talking about really complex patient usually these are really complex patients that you know someone would write a case report on and then they'll go into details about this patient case and this happened and that happened and i'm looking at this reading why do i care i didn't come here to read a case report i don't i don't i'm not here to learn about this disease i'm not here to learn about the fact that you saw something interesting it's about showing you in a good light or trying to learn about you as a person, why you would be a good fit for this program, why you even decided on the speciality. Talking about the patient this much does not benefit anyone in this scenario. Waste their time and it wastes you know, your chance to impress them. Now, context can be necessary. So the fact that you really were involved in someone's patient's care and you were, you know, looking up treatment plans for someone with AFib who cannot be on blood thinners. Now, to explain the fact that they have these comorbid conditions is perfectly fine and is even needed context to explain, you know, why you were looking things up or the fact that a person has an ailment with no cure and you know, they have some sort of a chronic illness with less than five months to live and you're trying to um, take them down with the, you know, like talk to them about hospice or trying to inform them 
to get them to at least consent about having a conversation with a palliative care expert to see what they can offer, even if they don't want those, uh, you know, uh, choices. The fact that you talk to the patient to open their mind up to at least have a discussion about hospice is a great thing. And it tells a lot about you. The fact that you talk about, you know, four sentences of how they have um, stage four lung cancer is not going to help anyone in this scenario. So talk about what you learned from this and talk about what you showed. And also don't talk about yourself in the passive sense in your personal statement, because now you're not shadowing anymore. You are, you should be doing things. You should be making assessments, you could, should be making plans, doing taking histories, physicals. Uh, you should be involved in the patient care. You should not be an observer anymore. You can observe your uh, attendings do things and you want to emulate them. But if a lot of the personal statement is you seeing this and you watch someone do that, they're going to be like, this is not the type of person we want in our program. We want person people who do things and who learn things. So just those are definitely great tips to keep in mind yeah for sure and i think like i've been told so much by like actually pds and like apds it's there for them to get to know you a little better right not for them to hear about what you like yes include the what you like about the specialty but they know what you like about the specialty because they're in the specialty and they probably like it for the same reasons so they're really there even though it's okay to include that but it's there to get to know you better. So I would just, you know, it's personal, but not, not like too personal. Um, would you want to talk about the MSPE? Yes. So we mentioned this a little bit in the, um, in the letters of recommendation section, but the MSPE is basically, it's essentially a really quick summary of all four years of your medical school. That's the way I would say it. So did you have any like gaps in your medical school? What was your research productivity? What type of grades in your class, your ranking, um, your like clerkship uh, performance? Um, what your, eval you? your evaluations. So oh, yeah, all of your, your, your evaluations yeah. from your uh, different clerkships. So for internal medicine, your final comment for internal medicine from the direct course director is included. And so they usually have quotes and things about like, how people worked with you and what they liked about you or what they didn't like and how they how you performed so those are the that's probably the biggest thing that comes out of the mspe is your grades ranking and those comments because they definitely look at those comments so if you you know if in a lot of the clerkships they've listed that you don't work well you know like oh you had some trouble with working in a team or you know improved your teamwork which is kind of code for saying you weren't good when you started with teamwork, then that's going to be a little bit bad. Or if they're like, oh, you know, he's improved on his medical knowledge. That kind of means it was like below average or below expected when you started. Um, versus if everyone's talking about like, oh, we had fun working with a great guy, you know, quotation marks, he's a fabulous human being and things like that, then they're going to be like, okay, this is great. And if one of them kind of goes off and says like, eh, had some trouble or whatever, they're more likely to look at everything as a congregate. But those are the most important things that are included in there. Uh, the only other thing that I would say is any professionalism violations or things like that you have are going to be listed. Um, 
I would ask your school on how to spin it if you have one, um, because they're gonna they're obligated to report it if you've had serious like professionalism issues. Now some things don't count as actual professionalism violations and won't be included. It depends on your school and how they characterize it. But I would ask your school if you have had any trouble. So for our school, there there's SPAC, and if you had to go to SPAC uh, and had any action taken against you. Even if it, it doesn't mean you were suspended, but if you had to go to SPAC and had that done, then it will be included in your MSPE. Yeah, so, yeah, definitely the like red flags, as they say. Or yeah. like if you did a, like this isn't a red flag necessarily, but if you did a, a year in med school where you did research or something, that's included. That's yeah. not necessarily bad, but if you had to repeat a year because you failed out of a course, exactly. all that stuff is included on there. Um, then there's the noteworthy characteristics. Yes. I think this is important. So a lot of the MSPE is, is it's in your control in the sense that like, you know, you can um, do better in clerkships or do better in the preclinical, but you know, it's not going to be written by you, right? It'll be written by someone in leadership at the school, but the noteworthy characteristics section is written by you. And I was really confused about this section at first, um, but basically it's three characteristics and each of these characteristics is like one to two sentences each. And you're supposed to kind of like highlight yourself in them, I guess, like a little bit outside your CV, outside your, your personal statement. And it's just, um, it kind of just explains your, your accomplishments. Um, and it's usually written with an advisor as well. So this is the only part of the MSPE that you will be writing and not the leadership in your school. I will say this when you, actually get to the point of writing this your advisors will make this a little bit clearer it's hard to really explain in a short amount of time what is considered a noteworthy characteristics but it, it includes things that you've done in medical school as maybe as well as something that could be hobbies and things like that like for example if you were a scuba diving instructor before you started medical school and or you're like a big volunteering movement for cleaning up the oceans with your scuba diving certification. You know, that could be a noteworthy characteristics. Oh, has helped in over five different campaigns to clean up so-and-so, uh, like clean up the Gulf Coast for so-and-so campaign. You know, that's a great noteworthy characteristic. Or if you were a president of the so-and-so interest group and you helped with this. So just those things like that. And that concludes the MSPE. Yeah, um, yeah, I yeah. Think so. So the next thing we'll talk about is the USMLE. For the ERAS, you just have to, uh, we won't, here we won't talk about the um, DO equivalent of USMLE because we don't know exactly how it looks on oh, their like ends. Complex. Yeah, complex. Yeah. So we won't talk about that purely because we don't know, we haven't taken it, and we also don't know how it shows up on the ERAS for them to submit it. So, But we will talk about USMLE in that all you have to do is kind of click a button that allows the USMLE, USMLE to release your score report to all of the schools. We won't necessarily go into all of the different studying strategies no, that, that's no. like tons of podcasts on its own but step one right now is pass fail but step two ck score is very important for your ap application process it's probably one of the most important thing 
that you have on your application because it's the only standardized test that's left to assess how you do in comparison to a nationalized cohort. Um, so in comparison to everyone else, like no matter where you go to medical school, how well are you doing academically? That's the only standardized test you have. Other things are relative to your medical school. So it's very important, do well on it and study well for your step one because it influences how well you do on step two. Yeah, and I, like I like you said, we can go into that forever. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah. But basically, um, just so you know, step one's taken at the end of preclinical years. Now that's pass fail though, you're probably gonna need a step two CK score. Yes. Um, because just kind of to give a reference, it used to be your step one score would um, be the most important or arguably most important, right? Um, but then the step two CK score, some people would actually take this later in their fourth year. But now it's going to become important to take that step two CK score in time so that you can have that score ready um, for applications. Um, so just keep that in mind when you're scheduling that step two and kind of planning out your fourth year, fourth year schedule that you need to take that test prior to application so that every, like all the programs will have that score. And again, it's just checking a box to send it over pay the money it's like 80 bucks or something to pay it over yes uh, not the, too bad. the next thing that you have to worry about is a photo um, that's included in ERAS um, for the photo you need, definitely need to look professional you know wear a suit and tie um, for women again you need to be wearing professional clothing uh, have a professional take it so for our school they offered to get our all of our photos taken by a professional photographer at the school, we just had to show up and you know book a time with them. And I don't know if all schools offer that, but if they do, definitely take advantage of that. If they don't, get someone professional because it does matter how well you they see you when they look at your application. You don't want it to be just some handheld camera that doesn't really look that great. If you know someone professional, get it that way but this is not the time when you need to be doing handmade or amateur uh <laughs> photography yeah for sure definitely do it professionally and look look groomed well groomed i mean i think we all know yeah. what that means at this point you know if you're a male suit and tie female you know professional clothing professional clothing um but if, if your school doesn't have this i would definitely recommend um just pay the money to, to do it professionally for sure yes the other thing that is a new um, addition to the ERAS application process is the supplemental application. Um, the supplemental application is actually due before the main application uh, is actually due. And it has a deadline. For us right now, it's September 14th, but it may be subject to change whenever you're applying. So it has a couple of components. I'll, I'll let Nick take over a little bit. Yeah, and the, I think that was kind of shocking to me that it was due before your application because it's like supplemental. Mm -hmm. So I think like for me, it was important to have my CV ready in before the supplemental because this way I knew what I could put in the supplemental. And I'll, we'll kind of get into that a little bit more. Um, so let's actually start with the signals. Um, Definitely. So it depends on your specialty. They all do it a little differently. Um, there's like 
you can get like five. Some have like what twenty five or something. Yeah, for uh, internal medicine, there's seven. Okay, signals. so seven signals, yeah. which is like program signals. So you're saying, let's say you really want like University of Florida uh, program, you would list them on there, and then they would get a notification that you're very interested in their program, basically, and it's supposed to help um, them know who's really interested in their program versus who's like didn't signal them or whatever. There's Um, definitely strategic planning in the signals because some top tier places do not care about signals. Um, Whereas if you're really interested in a, in a home program and you signal, so they will also, they will list who not to signal. So if you've done an away, if you've done an away rotation or a sub eye at the place, or if it's your home program, you do not need to signal them. They know you're interested because that's why you you either attend that place or you've done an away rotation, which shows a lot more interest than sending a signal. So in those cases, the committee they've they've put in guidelines for who you do not need to signal, but the rest of the signaling process like the rest of the places to signal is definitely a very should be a very calculated move on your part to maximize your chances so some a lot of programs care a lot more about signals than others mass gen for example does not care about signals that much from what i gather a lot of top tier academic places get signals all of the time and i don't and from some of the program director comments that i've either seen on twitter and things like that they do not seem to put as much emphasis on it as opposed to some program that's local to your area may not be as competitive, but gets a lot of applications from out of state as well. But if you signal them, that means that you didn't just cross a check, you know, like, you know, you didn't just pay for an application. Like why not apply to 200 programs? You're one of their top seven or top five programs that the applicant has signaled. So they'll take you seriously. So this should definitely be something you send to reach programs, even safety programs. Sometimes if you really want to go there and you want to show them that you're serious about attending. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely some strategy involved yeah. and there's some, I think like OB Gyn has like gold and silver yeah, and like yeah. something like that. So it's a little bit different. And then there's the regional signal as well. This is like broken up. Like there's, various regions, New England, Middle Atlantic, East, North, Central, South Atlantic, Mountain. Um, there's a bunch of different regions, but basically you get three of these and then you would put, you get a little section to write as well that you can say like basically why you're interested in that region. So if you're like, I'm interested in South because I grew up in Florida and I want to stay in Florida. Like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so you could basically just explain that a little bit. Um, yeah, also, um, Programs do not see what other region or what other program you're signaling. They only see if you've signaled them or not. So if a program is in the Southeast and you select it, so for example, South Atlantic, and you signaled, signaled South Atlantic, Central, and West South Central, that means that program in the South Atlantic is going to get a light that shows them that, okay, this is a preferred region. They're not going to know that this is one of the three preferred regions or if this is the only preferred region. Even if you put a no preference, they're not going to get that. They're not going to know that you put a no preference unless they look. But if you signal, so it it really benefits you to signal them because when you signal, so if you signal any three places, the other places don't know that, you know, you signal the other three places or what have you. They just see that you didn't pick 
North Atlantic, oh, you didn't pit mid Middle Atlantic as one of your preferred signals. So it doesn't hurt you to put all three, but there is a section that asks, like when you signal them, they ask you to write down a little explanation of why you're signaling them. So just put something in there. You don't want to leave it blank. For example, if you're from that area, you can say, I want to stay in the area. Or if you're interested in going there, you can be like, um, if you've done an away rotation, you can say that. Or if you have family in another uh, location, you can talk about that. But just put something there. And that's it. Yeah, for sure. That. And I think there are a little bit different strategies. Yeah, there stuff, are definitely different strategies. Take advantage of it the best you can. Yes. That's what I would say. Uh, what about meaningful experiences? Um, yeah, you want to explain it? Yeah, so there's five maximum meaningful experiences that you can put. And again, the character limit is very, very small so that you can only write around three sentences, I want to say, two to three. Maybe, t I think I got two. Yeah, so yeah. two two big ones or like three little sentences, um, which is not much, which is great because I hate writing. Um, <laughs> so you, you essentially write down some experiences that you definitely want them to read because they might not read all of your application, but these are the supplemental application kind of gives them a place to hone in if they're not going to read all of it. These are like three, four, five things that you definitely want them to focus on. And in like three to five, like in two to three sentences, you're explaining why. And if they're more, if they're curious about, you know, learning more about it, they can ask you about it in their interview. So it can be anything. Um, I, there are different characteristics that you tag, and I think Nick would be a better person to kind of go over that system. Yeah, so basically, like, with the characteristics, you can tag, like, for example, teamwork and leadership, ethical responsibility, resilience, and adaptability. And they recommend that you tie in those characteristics into what you say. So, like, I don't know, if you had a leadership position, like you were the president of an interest group, you can write teamwork and leadership, and then you could say, like, I led... <coughs> through this and, and all that stuff. So you could really, you really want to like, I guess, tie those uh, tags in. Um, yeah, basically, I mean, it's really meant to expand a little bit on your CV and kind of include other things. Wasn't that what you would say as well? Yes, definitely. And, you know, if you really want something to be seen, you should definitely include it in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then there's a section called the other impactful experiences. Um, generally this is a challenge or a setback that you had, um, some common things that I heard is like a family member died. Maybe you grew up in a poor area, financial trouble. Uh, maybe you're an immigrant. Uh, these are the common things. It's usually, usually a setback like that. Yeah. So they have guidelines for what dictates, like what should be written about in the other impactful experiences on the ERAS website. Um, and they'll generally, the prompt is that you know have you had any setbacks or challenges to getting to this point or to getting to residency and you can write about those and then they'll talk about each of the different things that you can kind of talk about and give examples of each so for example if you are the first person in your family to ever go to college you know that may be a setback that you had to find a lot of things out for yourself or if you're a first generation immigrant you didn't know English when you came to the U.S. and you had to like really like sort all of this out. Or if you're the first person in healthcare, you couldn't find people to shadow. You had to really like 
do everything on your own to really make all those connections and you grew because of that so you can talk about what what the challenge was and then you can talk about how, how that was a you know learning opportunity or why that makes you a better applicant or why that just makes you a more qualified person or how do i put it in a nice way? how has that impacted you to where that made you stronger yeah that's a really good way of putting it yes. it's like because like if you're an immigrant and you came here and you're the first person to go to college and all that stuff like i would view that as very positive like you were able to kind of break that that barrier and get and and come back stronger because of it exactly um so and again i just want to emphasize i think i might have mentioned this but just emphasize not everybody needs to fill out that yes it's pretty common very and, important and they they report I, f I forget the number of how many people fill it out it's like half or something but you definitely don't need to fill it out so if you leave it blank like it's it's generally acceptable based on the the guidelines yes it's actually it's better than putting something that that definitely should not there are some gray areas some things you could put and you could get away with and they might not it might not help you it might not hurt you but there are some things where again i don't think that per, especially with how new the supplemental application is currently i think there's a lot of um just people not knowing what exactly to do so i hope that program directors would have leniency but they definitely don't expect everyone to fill it out so it is more than it would be better to leave it blank than to put something just for the sake of putting something in there so yeah for sure yes that goes for the entire application don't put things just to fill it up you know you want to make yourself sound strong yeah definitely um so then that's like the supplemental application and again it is kind of it's relatively new um and it is it's technically optional as well but I don't think it's like really optional. Like you definitely need to fill it out from everything I've seen. Um, so that's just a little like a disclaimer there. So let's real quick, let's just go over um, some other hidden stuff. Just, um, just like some other weird little things and quirks that we found along the way. You didn't have to do the Casper test, right? I did not. So for anesthesiology, we had to do the Casper test. It's like called Alta Suite now. So if you did it for medical school, um, it's basically like a little judgment test. Um, I guess it helps determine like your ethics and problem solving ability. Uh, you can read more about that on their website, but it was for me, I was kind of like, I didn't realize I had to do that until a little later on. So we just wanted to mention that it also has other sections called the duet and the snapshot duets, like a values assessment and then snapshot is like a three question recording. Um, so that would be a recording of you done prior to the interview and they can watch um watch that later on so it's almost like an interview um some places require like weird almost like secondary applications so i know some programs ask like at the end of their personal statement like write a paragraph about why us or write a paragraph or like write a paragraph answering these two questions did you get any of those or no so for me i i won't lie i didn't go through all the programs i went through uh like 15 and for internal medicine they usually didn't have hidden stuff like that so i just said okay i'll just apply to all of them the same way but i know i've had friends in other specialities who've had interesting things such as um having to 
personally send them your personal statement. So you have to email them your personal statement on top of submitting it through ERAS. And this is just a way for them to kind of like uh, reduce the number of applications that they see. So if you didn't read their website, that means you're not really that interested in their program. You just kind of checked a box and paid them for nothing, essentially. Yeah, I would definitely recommend going through all of the the places that you're applying to. They're at least their website, if not like contact them and just make sure you have and fulfill all the requirements. Um, finally, I mean, this is actually something that I've heard from other faculty as well. Check your like internet profile, like just Google yourself sometimes, see if your Facebook comes up as like inappropriate or, or Instagram or something. Huh? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Like Facebook, Instagram. Um, you just want to make sure that, you know, you look professional online. So basically, I mean, kind of put this in summary, if we could give any advice, I mean, keep track of everything along the way, your CV, your experiences, uh, write them down, even just quick in your phone as notes. I think that'd really help you um, later on. Review the, the PD survey and the NRMP data based on your specialty. What are they looking for? If you're really interested in neurosurgery, okay, you can see like, how much research do I need? Is this something that they value? That's really important to look at and plan for. Um, and then ask for your letters of recommendation really early. This is something, this is probably the one piece that's a little bit out of your control on your ERAS. You can work on your personal statement to the last minute and you'll, you'll probably be okay as long as the website doesn't close down, but you can't ask for a letter of recommendation last minute. So to have those early um, and ask for strong letters the way we discussed earlier, I think is really important. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening to our podcast and hope you had a good, joyful experience. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.